beginning in verse 12. And we'll read through the rest of the chapter. Acts 12, 1, verse 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Delet, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open into the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, and who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Please pray with me. Father, we, as we begin to, to look at your word, to examine it in depth, Lord, we want to petition you for grace to understand. Lord, we know that we need you every minute of every hour of every day. And, and especially as we seek to, to understand spiritual truth. Because we don't want to merely understand it, though we need help even to understand it. Lord, but we want to, to understand it to the point of living it out fully. Lord, we want to see all the treasure that you have embedded in your word. And not only to see it, but to love it, to, to, to make it our treasure. Lord, that you would use your word to, to transform our minds, to renew our minds, and to direct us into how you would have us live, how you would have us act, how you would have us think. And so even before we begin, we ask for your assistance even now. Please hear our prayers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in just a few days, the church that met in Jerusalem grew from 120 people to thousands in just a few days. 
And the question I think that, that, that prompts that is how did that happen? What took place in, the, in causing this amazing revival? Ian Murray, who's written a number of books on revival, he's a church historian, uh, and I highly recommend his books, Pentecost Today and Revival and Revivalism. In, that, in one of those books, he defines a revival as an outpouring of the Spirit of God bringing sinners to faith and repentance and should be prayed for and hoped for by the people of God. And, and students of revival always go back to Pentecost as the mother of all revivals. And this is for good reason, because it's biblical and we want to go to the Bible to give us instruction and understanding, but also because it was truly phenomenal. Again, 120, and in days, there were thousands who had gathered. People who had once cried out for Christ to be crucified, now welcomed Him as their Lord and Savior. But as we see in this chapter, the disciples don't actually do anything phenomenal, though what happens is phenomenal. They just simply pursue the means of grace. They pray, they preach, and they wait for the Spirit. And eventually, the Spirit comes in chapter 2 and uh, produces phenomenally rich fruit. And, and the same principle holds true to us today as well. Spiritual growth may be slow for a season. Our own individual spiritual growth, the spiritual growth in, in a church or in our evangelistic efforts, it may be slow for years. And then... When the Lord chooses, He pours out His Spirit and it comes forth in abundance. Remember Jesus' parable in Mark chapter 4. He said this in Mark chapter 4, verse 26. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. He did his work and then waited and then it was fruitful. And so, truth be told, spiritual harvests really are the result of a very simple work. And then the Lord chooses his own timing to eventually produce fruit. And this is, this is why we just, when we're waiting to see fruit born in our life, we just need to be patient, pursue those means of grace, keep plotting and, and doing the next thing, especially in those seasons where we don't see Him working, what we call the blind seasons, because we don't see how the Spirit is at work. And times we might even be tempted to think He's not at work at all. But that's not true. Sometimes He just takes His time. And when he does choose to pour forth his spirit, it is often in great abundance. In Acts, Acts chapter 1, we find the disciples just doing the very next thing before them. And that is they, they gather for prayer, they listen to preaching, and they wait. And they do this all together as they're gathered together. And there's just a real simple outline for this message, and that's really based upon those two things. They devote themselves to prayer. We see that in verses 12 through 14. And then they devote themselves to preaching. 
So that in verses 15 through 26. Let's look first of all at their devotion to prayer. After being exhorted by the angels following Christ's ascension to, to be about the work that he commanded them to do, it's remarkable that the first thing that we see the disciples doing is praying. And Luke says that they were in one accord, literally one mind. They were, they were united in their purpose, in their ambition, what they wanted in life. They were united in their focus. So it wasn't like every man for himself, but it was one for all, all for one. They all had the same vision, the same purpose. And again, it's no accident that the very first thing they commit themselves to is prayer. But it is interesting, why, why, why commit themselves to prayer when Jesus had commanded them to be witnesses? Why didn't they just go forth and preach? Well, it's because Jesus also told them to go into Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the promise of the Father, referring to the Holy Spirit. And so that's what they were doing. They were obeying God, and as they waited, they prayed. Because they knew they needed, even with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, they still needed God's blessing. They, the, the Spirit works through prayer. And so prayer is no idle activity. And spiritually speaking, prayer is preparation for ministry. It's like a scrimmage before a big game or like a rehearsal before a concert. We want to see God do great things. But if He's going to do great things, we need to pray. We need to plea. The disciples were actually following the pattern of Christ that He set. And you might recall before He picked His chosen uh, 12 disciples, He went up on a mountain to pray. He devoted Himself all night in prayer, it says in Luke 6. 12 through 13. And then after that, he called his disciples to himself. And in fact, that's what we see happening in Acts chapter 1. The disciples pray, and then they fill out their number because they lost one. Jesus prayed before he began his public ministry of healing and preaching. Jesus prayed. And he prayed all night at times because he understood his need even for the Spirit's assistance. It says in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And then he began his ministry. It's what he did before his greatest ministry. When he died on the cross, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and poured out his heart before the Lord. I mean, that pattern should tell us something. As even our Lord, the Son of God himself, would devote himself to prayer, if we expect the Lord to work in our lives and in the life of this church, we need to devote ourselves to prayer. And that's why the disciples do precisely this. The missionary Adoniram Judson once wrote, I am persuaded that we are all more deficient in a spirit of prayer than any other grace. God loves importunate prayer so much that He will not give us much blessing without it. And the reason that he loves such prayer is that he loves us and knows that it is a necessary preparation for our receiving the richest blessings which he is waiting and longing to bestow. I never prayed sincerely and earnestly for anything, but it came at some time. No matter at how distant a day, somehow, in some shape, 
probably the last I would have devised, it came. I mean, I'm immediately reminded of what George Mueller did when he would pray long, devoted hours to prayer, and he prayed for specific in- individuals every day of his life. And even after he died, a couple of those people had not yet come to know the Lord. And yet after he died, they eventually did. No doubt in answer to his own prayers for them. And Luke says the apostles were devoting themselves to prayer. The verb originally means, uh, meant to, to pursue something obstinately, to be stubborn in. Cabeza dura, right? Like Julio. Right? So you understand what I'm saying. It means to attach oneself to, to hold fast to something, to continue in, to persevere in. Even the English word devotion comes from the Latin word meaning to make a vow. Right? When you vow something, it means you're not going to let go of it. When you're devoted to something, you keep coming back to it. Think of like a, a Labrador retriever and their ball. Like maple and its ball and her ball. We, we should be devoted to prayer like maple is devoted to her ball. It's the first thing we think about in the morning. Right? When we have free time. Instead of pulling out our smartphone to see what's happening on the news or social media, it should be, what's on my, what do I need to pray for? Who do I need to pray for? And I'm sure the disciples were individually devoted to prayer. But what this text is emphasizing is their commitment to pray together. Notice that. They're not just out on their own individually praying, which would be great, but they know they need to be together to pray. And, and the example of the early church here in the book of Acts is part of the reason why we, the elders wanted to make sure we set aside time during the week for prayer as a congregation. And so Wednesday nights, beginning at 6, we're going to have a weekly prayer meeting so that we, because we expect the Lord to do great things and we believe He works through prayer. And so we hope that as many of you as who can come would come. And, I, and I'm certain the Lord would greatly bless you and, of course, bless our church through that. It was on August 13, 1727 at Hernhut that the Moravians began a prayer meeting which resulted eventually in the first missionary movement in over a millennium. Missions began after thousands of years of nothing, more or less, in result of a prayer meeting. The Great Awakening in New England started when Jonathan Edwards gathered his church together to pray particularly for profligate youth in their community. And six, six youth ended up coming to know the Lord on account of that prayer meeting, and that was the very beginning of the Great Awakening. From those six youth, the, the revival just spread. It was at a noontime prayer meeting at Farley Hall that Moody was launched on his great evangelistic endeavor. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote in his famous address, only a prayer meeting. He said this, We shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. It was in seeing the, the, the impact of the prayer meeting 
that he had established that Jonathan Edward wrote a book called, uh, simply titled, A Humble Inquiry. It's actually a longer title, but, or A Humble Attempt. I'm not going to give you the whole title, but you could look it up if you're interested by that title. And in the book, Edwards explains, It is God's will, through his wonderful grace, that the prayers of his saints should be one great and principal means of carrying on the designs of Christ's kingdom in the world. When God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it's his will that there should precede, it, should, that there should precede it the extraordinary prayers of his people. He's saying, if God wants to do something great, he wants his people to pray first in order to bring about that great thing that he has prepared. Now, Edward's book actually wasn't widely circulated. Many of Edward's other books were. But 40 years after its publication, in 1784, a Scottish pastor sent a copy of Edward's book that he had to some Baptist leaders in England. And they republished the book and then went, began to urge churches to begin meeting on the first Monday of each month to pray for a revival. And within a few years, those particular Baptists would act on their prayers for worldwide revival by sending out William Carey, who became known as the father of modern missions. And then Carey, seeing the powerful fruit that arose from these prayer meetings, also wrote a small booklet explaining the importance of prayer meetings in churches. It was entitled, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. And a handful of American college students got their hands on Carey's book. And that prompted them to gather together in 1806 in what became known as the Haystack Prayer Meeting. And it was from that Haystack Prayer Meeting that the American missionary movement was founded. And their most famous missionary was sent out by them, Adoniram Judson. All in response to a prayer meeting. And over the next 50 years, the American Board of Com Commissioners for Foreign Missions sent out 1,250 missionaries to India, China, Hawaii, and the Southeast Asian countries. In just 50 years, 1,200 missionaries. All in response to a prayer meeting. And I bring up those historical examples, not because we need them, but because it just provides fresh evidence of what we see here in the book of Acts. God works through prayer. And if we want to see the, the heathen around us come to know the Lord and, and, and receive his mercy and receive his grace and to be set free from their savior's sin, we need to be about prayer as individuals, but also as a church. We live in a culture that wants quick and easy fixes to our problems. But quick and easy is not a recipe for biblical success. And we know that. We admire the success of faithful Christians in the past. And it's easy to assume that the reason they were effective was because of their education or because of their particular intelligence or their eloquence. But they couldn't do anything. They couldn't accomplish anything apart from the Spirit's work in their life. Any more than we can cause a corpse to come to life. We don't have that power. Nobody has that power. Well, if we believe that to be true, that we have no power to actually bring about spiritual life and spiritual growth, then brothers and sisters, we have to be 
devoted to prayer. The Spirit chooses to work through devoted prayer, but He also chooses to work through preaching, as we see in verses 15 through 26. And that's what we see in the second section, that following Christ's ascension, the disciples devote themselves not just to prayer, but to preaching. Because verses 15 and 26 essentially record the disciples listening to a single sermon given by Peter. And then it shows their response to it. First, we're told that the disciples at this time numbered about 120 people. That's approximately about the number of people in this room. It's about the size of Grace and Truth Bible Church. And yet, in a few days, it would be thousands. So the church included more than just the twelve and Mary and Jesus' brothers, but it, but it was still rather small. And the prospects for growth just didn't look great. And like the rest of the sermons in the book of Acts, Luke, when he records Peter's sermon, doesn't give us the whole sermon. He just gives us the essential substance of the sermon rather than word for word what he said. And the sermon Peter gives is based upon two psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And its main point is seen in verse 16. The scripture had to be fulfilled in regard to Judas. This is because the the scripture way back in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, recorded that the Messiah that was promised would eventually be betrayed. It was purposed by God. The wickedest deed, arguably, that was ever committed was purposed by God for our good. And although Judas was a friend and a companion of Peter, in this sermon, Peter highlights his wickedness. Peter notes that Judas, just like the rest of them, had received the special honor of being called an apostle. That that the position of authority, but also to, to, to learn from the Son of God Himself for three years. Judas was given that position and he threw it away. And why did he throw it away? For money. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Look at verse 14. Sorry, that's not it. Matthew 26, let's try that. (laughs) Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? What will you give me? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. 
In verse 18 of Acts 1, Peter notes that Judas then with his money acquired a field. Now in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 27, if you turn there, it says that Judas, being overcome with remorse at what he had done, brought the money that he had received from the high priest, the 30 pieces of silver, and threw it on the temple floor. And then he went and hanged himself. Turn actually to Matthew 27, verse 3. It says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the piece of silver into the temple, he departed. He went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the piece of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought within the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him who had a price been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave him for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So this is all in fulfillment of what the Lord had planned. And it also shows that Judas didn't directly go out and buy a field, but rather he acquired it posthumously in response to, by the hands of the chief priests. And they did this precisely to fulfill the scriptures. This is here to show us that even in the greatest tragedies, God's in absolute control. Nothing shocks him. Another interesting thing that, to note is that Matthew says that Judas hanged himself. But Peter said that Judas fell headlong. That he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. So how do we reconcile Matthew's account and Peter's account in Acts 1. Well, probably the best, like, most likely explanation is that Peter hung himself on a tree overlooking a ravine or something. When the branch that he was hung on broke, he fell off the ravine and his guts burst out upon falling. The field was named Field of Blood, both on account of being bought with blood money and on account of Judas's blood being spilled upon it. In verse 20, Peter gets to his text, which is Psalm 69. He begins with Psalm 69 when he says, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Now, Psalm 69, as we read earlier in the scripture reading, it's a very heavy psalm. Because it's, it's, it's David recording a period of, of great grief and isolation. And the disciples understood it to really be a foreshadowing of the Messiah's suffering. In fact, in John 2.17, it says that Jesus' statement, for zeal for your houses consume me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me, they, that's taken from Psalm 69. And the disciples understood that as referring to Christ. Also in Acts chapter 1, Peter focuses on the second part of the psalm. And that's in verse 25. And it's, it's in this part of the psalm where, where 
David is pleading for vengeance upon his enemies because he's being treated unjustly. When David asks God to make their camp desolate, what he's essentially asking is that his enemies would be completely wiped out. You might recall that uh, what happened to Ben-Hadad and the Syrians as they came upon a, the siege of Jerusalem. Elijah prophesied that that whole army be wiped out in a day. And they were. But the angel of the Lord decimated them. Peter, in, in his sermon, then applies this same principle of vengeance to Judas. See, Peter's point is that Judas lost his life on account of his attack on the Son of God. God the Father was taking vengeance upon Judas. Peter also quotes Psalm 109 when he says, Let another take his office. And again, this is a psalm where David is pleading for vengeance upon his enemies. In fact, go ahead and look there. It's, it's worth seeing David's pleas in Psalm 109 that are attributed in reference to Judas by Peter. Psalm 109, beginning in verse 6. David says, Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before Yahweh. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. And Peter is now applying these words to Judas. And saying he died on account of God's vengeance upon him. Remarkably, the, the men's discipleship group that meets on Sunday, just last week we were studying the book of Nahum, which is a, a book that's dedicated almost entirely to the vengeance of God. In fact, the book begins this way. Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. The book emphasizes that Yahweh is an avenging God. It's part of his character, it's part of his nature. And when he sees injustice, when he sees wickedness, he will avenge it. And he wants us to understand that. That he doesn't turn a blind eye towards sin. It must be paid for. And it's for this reason, knowing that God is an avenging God, that Christians are commanded at the end of Romans 12, which is what we're currently memorizing as a church, Christians are commanded this, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's a promise. God says, I will repay, therefore you don't do it, or else my vengeance will have to come upon you. It says, he says, to the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, the, the point of all these texts, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, the book of Nahum, Romans 12, is to emphasize to us that God will take vengeance on his enemies. Therefore, we don't need to. It's not our job. And so when we're wronged by others, it's really a test of our faith in God. Will we assume that we should take our own vengeance? Or will we trust God to do it in His time and according to His methods? Do we actually believe that God will do with the wrong, deal with the wrongdoer? Or do we lash out with angry words? And insults? Do we threaten physical harm? Or a lawsuit? Remarkably, Peter, who's preaching here in Acts 1, will later write in 1 Peter chapter 2, But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Was Christ treated wickedly? Was he unrighteously betrayed? Absolutely he was. By a close friend. Did that close friend receive the vengeance of God? Yes. That's written for our example. We're not to take vengeance, but leave it to the wrath of God. Instead, what we're to do is to extend kindness to our enemies, to bless those who persecute us, and to pray for them, and to trust God to do His work of vengeance. Peter's main point in his sermon in Acts 1, again, is that God poured out His vengeance upon Judas to fulfill the Scriptures. And then in verse 21, he comes to application of the sermon. In light of Jesus' fulfillment of Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, as the quintessential enemy of the Messiah, he was destroyed. He was killed by his own hand. And therefore, his role as an apostle needed to be replaced. And this is because there needed to be 12 apostles. Because the apostles, as Christ's chosen followers were chosen to be representatives of the remnant of Israel, who would then therefore go out to the nations, as was God's original design, to proclaim to them the good news of the gospel. And so there needed to be 12 because there were 12 tribes of Israel. But there's only 11. And so knowing that, Peter recognizes we need to fill out that number. And he assumes we need to do that before the Spirit comes. Because that's what they're waiting for. And so, they decide to appoint another apostle. And then, Peter lists what the qualifications of an apostle uh, should be. 
And there's four. They needed to be a man. That man needed to be, uh, have been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry until his ascension. They needed to be a witness of his resurrection. And they needed to be willing to serve as a witness or an evangelist. That's what's implied in the word witness. Not only did they need to see the resurrected Christ, but they needed to be willing to go and bear witness of the resurrected Christ to others. Because that's what the apostles were commanded to do. And, And you can see that that was a pretty limited group of people because the apostles only identify two people that qualify. Matthias and a man named Justice. But they still need to make a choice as to, to know who is it that Christ has appointed. So you'll notice they're not trying to figure out who do we want to be in this position. There's no campaigning. There's no politicking. The question is, who have you appointed for this position? Right? So they say in verse 24, they pray seeking the Lord's wisdom. You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these Two, you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So they're acknowledging, it's interesting, they're acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God. They're acknowledging his omniscience because he's ascended from them. And they ask him in their prayer, you show us whom you have chosen because you, Christ, know the hearts of all. So they're acknowledging that Jesus is God, but they're also acknowledging that they want His will to be done rather than their will. In their prayer, they're not saying, I really think so-and-so would be a good candidate as an apostle. They're praying, God, who have you chosen? Show us, make it clear who you've chosen. And so they, they decide to do this by casting lots. Now, it's, it's, it's interesting and I think remarkable that they didn't vote. They weren't trying to identify a majority opinion because they wanted the Lord's will, not their own. It's also remarkable that they didn't that Peter here didn't just exercise his papal authority. You would think if Peter was the first pope, he would just say, Hey, I'm the vicar of Christ. I'll tell you what Christ wants. But he doesn't. And he doesn't because he's not the vicar of Christ. And he was never appointed to be the vicar of Christ. He's just an apostle, just a man whom God appointed to lead his church. And so the, the, the apostles, the twelve, agree to discern the Lord's will by a casting of lots. And this is an expression of faith. We see this in Proverbs 16.33. It says, The lot cast into the lap, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from Yahweh. It's between two people. Let's cast lots and just trust that the Lord in his sovereignty, will make it clear. And so they identified Matthias. The disciples wanted to be fully prepared for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's why they wanted to fill out their number. And that's, all, that's also why they devoted themselves to prayer. And why they gathered together and to, to hear the word of God, to hear the word preached by Peter. And then they sought to apply the scriptures in filling out the numbers of their appointment as apostles. So the preaching, as well as the prayers, were all preparations for the outpouring of the Spirit which would come at Pentecost. 
And I, wanna, I say that because I want you to see these are no idle activities. These are not just things Christians do. They're things that Christians do that the Holy Spirit works through to accomplish His will. They're, they're not just vain activities. They're powerful activities. And we might not see that power at work, just like we don't see plants growing up from the ground when seed is sown. But it happens. And it happens as the Lord prescribes. And the final and most important ingredient for the revival that, that we'll look at next week is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So we have prayer, preaching, the application of the Scriptures, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as the recipe for revival that is expressed in Acts 1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't know if it's Your will to, to bring about another, another revival in our lifetime. But Lord, we, we want to be about the work that You've called the church to do. To be preaching the Gospel in our own region and throughout the world. To be sending out and supporting missionaries in their labors. And Lord, we want to be about the building up of Your church locally. Lord, not just attending but serving, and not just serving, but praying, and not just praying, but listening to Your Word preached, and applying Your Word to our lives so that we would be transformed. But Lord, we, we acknowledge that in all of this, we want to see spiritual fruit, and we want to see it abundantly produced in our midst, but we recognize that even through our most strenuous efforts, Lord, they would accomplish nothing unless You choose to work. And so we choose to obey you and in pursuing the means of grace as we look forward with faith to see you bring about the fruit that we so long for in our lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. New, 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 new uh, changes I'm getting used to.